Joining us now in this segment is our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zaravika. Hello, Doug. It's nice to be here. We're glad to have you. It's good to have you back. It's been about, what, a year? Uh, yes, it has. I've been busy slipping them surly bonds of earth. Flying about the country. Yes, indeed. This story comes to us courtesy of the latest, which is the 17th edition of the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. This one is the Uncle John's Slightly Irregular Bathroom Reader. All right, here we go. Air Canada Flight 143 on July 23rd, 1983, started out like any other flight. Captain Robert Pearson and First Officer Maurice Quintal had arrived ahead of time to go over the aircraft. The flight was scheduled to depart Montreal shortly before 6 p.m. They were going to make a quick 19-minute hop to Ottawa to pick up more passengers before flying 1,700 miles across Canada to Edmonton, Alberta. The plane was a twin-engined Boeing 767, at that time one of the most sophisticated commercial aircraft around. Now, it was one of the first commercial jets with a what was called a glass cockpit, meaning all these standard instruments and gauges had been replaced with a bank of computer screens displaying the same information in a digital graphic format. Correct. It looked very much like a uh, computer video game. The jet that I fly is a Boeing 727, and we still refer to it as a steam-powered instrument because there are gauges and needles and uh, won't all get blown out by just one fuse. But yes. I guess I'm just old school. The 767 in 1983 was so new that Air Canada owned only four of them, none of which had been in service for more than a few months. Captain Pearson, who had more than 26 years in the job, was one of only a handful of Air Canada pilots qualified to fly the plane. It's because so much information was condensed on easy-to-read displays, it eliminated the need for the pilot to scan numerous tiny gauges all over the cockpit, which reduced eye strain and fatigue. Ha ha. Yeah, maybe. That's the idea. The new 767s, the article points out, were so sophisticated, in fact, that only two people were needed to fly it, the pilot and the first officer or co-pilot, instead of the usual three. The position of flight engineer had been eliminated. I like being in a three-person cockpit. Many reasons. You have another brain and another set of eyes up there <laughs> to help scan for things and, and help a, a brainstorm if necessary. And also... If the captain is in a bad mood, there's only a 50% chance he's going to take it out on me. <laughs> well, words of wisdom. Stay tuned with that thought about having two people versus three in a cockpit. As it turned out on this day, this day being uh, July 23rd, back in 1983, they got on board and realized there was something wrong with the fuel quantity processor, the instrument that measures the available jet fuel and displays the amount on the computer screen. As a result... The fuel gauge display was blank, and there was no spare fuel quantity processors available on short notice. The planes were too new. Captain Pearson would have to fly the plane without any fuel gauges. But was that permitted? In a traditional jumbo jet, it said the answer was no. But the 767's fuel management system was much more sophisticated than a traditional mechanical fuel gauge. It could actually measure the rate at which fuel was consumed, which meant that you could, uh, you know, you could, if you manually told the computer how much fuel was in the tanks, at the start of the flight, it would automatically subtract the amount consumed to give the precise estimate of how much was left. Well, in the older model aircraft, uh, we would not have taken off. Well... 
as it turned out with this then newer model aircraft they had consulted the 767's official official minimum equipment list or MEL to see if it could be cleared to fly and it could not be and when Pearson Captain Pearson pointed this out to one of the mechanics the mechanic assured him that the plane had been cleared to fly by the Air Canada's maintenance control division which has the final say even over the minimum equipment list as to whether an aircraft is safe. Captain Pearson, it might be stated, had his misgivings. I'm surprised that the Air Canada Maintenance Control Division stated that they had the final say when it's the captain, in this case, Captain Pearson, who always has the final say. Well, it was the mechanic that claimed that Air Canada had the final say in whether it was safe to fly, and apparently the captain at that moment bought into the argument, which I'm sure he was sorry of shortly. And this this uh, goes to show it's this was I would say the first chain or first link in the chain. <laughs> yes. Or the first domino. Yes. Because the most, first domino has now fallen. Most any accident, aviation accident that's looked into, it is no one single event. It is a whole chain of events that happened that had anybody at any point during the chain or the domino toppling just said, "Hey, wait a second we would have averted the whole thing. And to me, this looks like the first domino. Well, here comes the second domino. Air Canada's four 767s had another way that they were unique. They were the first jumbo jets in the entire fleet to use the metric system. The fuel was measured in kilograms, not pounds, that they, the, the Air Canada pilots were used to dealing with. Adding to the confusion, while the plane measured its fuel by mass, which is kilograms, the fuel truck measured the fuel truck measured out its gasoline allotment by volume in liters. Now, with the fuel quantity processor broken, all the calculations normally done by computers were now done on a pocket calculator. They asked, but whose job was it to do the math? Well, on the ordinary jumbo jet, it was the flight engineer's job to calculate the fuel load. But on the 767 that day, that position had been eliminated. As an investigation, it says, later revealed, the pilots had been told that fuel calculations were now the job of the ground crew. But since the ground crew hadn't been trained to do the calculations, then either the captain or the first officer had to be responsible for them now. Here's the math. Captain Pearson knew he needed 22,300 kilograms to get to Edmonton. He also knew there were 7,682 liters of fuel in the tanks. So it's a rather simple arithmetic question. How many liters of additional fuel does the plane need to get to 22,300 kilograms? That's the question. <laughs> now, Captain Pearson was used to thinking in terms of gallons and pounds, and his knowledge of the metric system, it says, was a little bit rusty. So he asked the guy on the refueling truck, how many liters are in a kilogram? 1.77, the guy answered. And that sounded about right to him. The first officer, Kintle, he thought so too. So here's what they did. They knew they had 7,700 liters. They multiplied times 1.77 kilograms per liter to determine that they had about 13,600 kilograms. They needed 22,000, so they subtracted and got 8,700 was the deficit. Going over to the fuel truck and then saying, well, we need 8,700 liters, divide 1.77, add 4,900 liters, and it should all work out. They did the math a couple times. The co-pilot looked at it and said, 
that's got to be right. See, Doug, sitting here and listening to him, I'm, I'm already getting nervous and, and the hair on the back of my neck is standing up, let alone if I was a co-pilot in that situation. My old aviation hero and mentor in Alaska, old bush pilot, said, boys, if you feel the hair on the back of your neck standing up, there's something <laughs> wrong. You don't have to know what's wrong. There's something wrong. Right now, these were red flags that should have been going for these guys. The fuel, we don't know how much fuel is. We're using an abacus to figure out how much fuel we're going to put on board. And then we're doing metric liter pound conversions. Something, they should have stopped this at right here and it would not have been a problem. So they take off. They fly to Ottawa. The fuel crew checks the amount of liters left and figure that, you know, they're about right. This is going to work out. The math is okay. They have plenty of gas to get to Edmonton. The Boeing 767 then takes on 61 passengers and with eight additional crew members, takes off for Alberta. You, you, know, you know where this is going. They multiplied 1.77 to convert liters into kilograms. But in fact, 1.77 converts liters into pounds. They, they overestimated what they had in the tank by a factor of 2.2, and they underestimated how much they were actually adding by a factor of 2.2, which was a rather critical difference. I would think so. They had quite a bit less than half of what they actually needed. The first hint of trouble came just minutes before the engines quit, <laughs> which was about two hours into the flight. Four quick audible beeps sounded in the cockpit and a warning light came on indicating that one of the two fuel pumps in the left wing was reporting low pressure. Well, that wasn't unheard of. Uh, at first, Captain Pearson assumed there was something wrong with the fuel pump. So the pilot now thinks he's got a problem with the left wing fuel tank. He drops from 41,000 down to 28,000 feet and starts making plans to land with one engine if it comes to that. But the problem was five minutes after the first alarm sounded, there were four more beeps and then two more lights came on and then another four beeps and another four lights. Now the tool fuel pumps in the right wing tank as well as the tool fuel pumps in the center tank were reporting low pressures. So actually now he's got problems in all three tanks. And the problems in all three tanks will soon come <laughs> to problems in both engines. <laughs> Stay tuned. Nine minutes after the first beeps, a loud bong sounded in the cockpit. The left engine, completely starved of gas, sputtered out. Pearson and Quintal, still trying to figure out what was going on, prepared to land the 767 at Winnipeg with only one engine. It was an emergency situation, but it was something the plane was designed to do and something they'd been trained to handle. Unfortunately, three minutes later, the right engine ran out of fuel and quit. Pearson and Kintel had not been trained to land a 767 with both engines out. In fact, no one had. Jumbo jets are not supposed to run out of fuel. Indeed, they are not. This reminds me of uh, the three most uh, useless things in all of aviation. That is uh, runway behind you, altitude above you, and fuel left back in the fuel truck. Indeed, sir. I don't know which domino we're on now, but we're about to hit another one. They're tumbling rapidly. Captain Pearson quickly realized that this glass cockpit arrangement in the 767 was a little bit different because in a conventional aircraft, the mechanical instruments uh, keep working even if the engines quit. But in this case, they derived their power from the electrical generators powered by the jet engines. When both engines fail, the generators quit producing electricity and the computer screens go dark. Fortunately, they could still see out the window. 
Captain Pearson losing the digital instruments uh, had lost now the plane's airspeed, its altitude, its heading. He lost his transponder, which gives the plane's location, speed, and altitude for, to air traffic controllers, and he lost his vertical speed indicator, which told him how fast the plane was losing altitude. He didn't even have a clock. If they were in clouds and they had no instruments, it is impossible to keep the airplane upright. Next domino. The hydraulic system, which controls the landing gear and rudders, as it turned out, are also powered by the engine. So when the engines quit and the cockpit went dark, Pearson also felt that his yoke control and his rudder pedals were stiffening and becoming rather unresponsive. Well, Captain uh, had no fuel, almost no instruments, and was now quickly losing his ability to control the aircraft. But I didn't know this, and I'm sure you as a, a commercial pilot did know this. Airplanes are designed with many redundancies so that if a piece of equipment fails, there's usually a backup. And this plane did have a backup. The co-pilot, Kintel, flipped the switch to activate the auxiliary power unit, the APU, which is designed to, power, uh, to provide backup electricity and hydraulics. There was just one problem. The APU was powered by jet fuel. Well, that was pretty much it for the digital instruments. There's no way to power them. They're done. But they did have a backup system to at least power the hydraulics to control the, the, the yoke and the pedals. And <laughs> Uncle John's asks, did you ever stick a pinwheel out the window of a moving car when you were a kid? Well, the Boeing 767 has a device called the Ram Air Turbine, located near the right wheel well. It's a propeller on a long arm, and in an emergency can be manually extended into the airstream, like the kid's pinwheel. When the RAT hits the airstream, the propeller spins and generates just enough hydraulic pressure in the process to power basic flight controls. Co-pilot Quintel... <laughs> grabs the 767's emergency procedures manual and starts looking for the section that tells them what to do when both engines fail. But unfortunately, there was no such section. <laughs> These planes are not supposed to run out of gas. And they note that so many redundancies had been built into its design that they never tested for the ultimate failure. No fuel in the tanks. They figured with, with all of the other redundancies in this aircraft and alarms, etc., such a thing would simply never happen. The planes weren't supposed to run out of fuel, not in the air, not on the ground, not ever. And because the 767 had never been flight tested with both engines off, nobody knew how the jet would perform as a glider. So the captain at this point became a test pilot. <laughs> exactly where you do not want to be. No. Well, it turned out that the radios did have a backup battery, so they were at least able to maintain communication. And by radioing to the Winnipeg Air Traffic Control and them guesstimating off the, off the screen how fast they were losing altitude, they figured they lost about 5,000 feet for every 10 minutes traveled. And that wasn't good news because they were 35 miles away from Winnipeg, and they were going to probably come up about a dozen miles short of the runway. I practiced many, many a, a, a suppose in the Davis area of what I'd do if the, seven, if the Cessna 172 ran out of fuel, we, we would land in a field. But I don't think I want to test that with a 61 passenger <laughs> on board 767. No. But luckily, and they do have a, a spot of luck on a couple points at this point. Air traffic control notes that Gimli, Manitoba is 50 miles north of Winnipeg, closer to their position. And uh, as luck would have it, they have two very long runways. 
And luckily, Captain Kintel had trained at the airport when he was in the Air Force, so he was familiar with it. Flight 143 was going to Gimli as a glider. I wonder what they've been telling the passengers <laughs> during all of this. Well, we're at, we're at part three of this saga, where it starts out with, meanwhile, back in coach. <laughs> um, one of the nice things they note about the, this new Boeing 767 was this engines were so quiet, and the cabin was so well insulated for sound, that very few passengers were even aware that both engines had stopped. It wasn't until the flight attendants began preparing everyone for an emergency landing that the passengers realized that things were serious. People were instructed to remove their eyeglasses, dentures, and any sharp objects from their pockets and to fasten their seat belts low and tight around their hips, and they were told to assume the crash position, arms crossed, hands holding the top of the seat back in front of them, head resting on their arms, and be ready for a rough landing. Well, it turned out Captain Pearson was a glider pilot. And they note that if he hadn't been, there's a pretty good chance that it would have already crashed. (laughs) Because in addition to being one of Canada's best jet pilots, he was also a licensed glider pilot with more than 10 years of experience. Uh, So it was Canada's best jet pilot (laughs) ran out of fuel? Well, stay tuned. You be the judge of what, what follows. Now, they did note that Captain Pearson did have a few mechanical backup instruments in the aircraft. He had an artificial horizon to help keep the plane level, an altimeter telling him how high he was, and an airspeed indicator. Now he had to work on the problem of how to glide one of these babies in. They note the normal landing speed for a 767 is between 115 and 153 knots, which for you uh, calculating in miles per hour, between 130 and 175. He decides he wants to come in a little hot. 180 knots, 205 miles an hour. Reasoning that he just can't risk coming in any slower. He does not want to stall this aircraft. Right. Extra speed is good, and it's better to run off the far end of the runway than it is to crash short of the runway. But now we hit the next domino. They're headed for Gimli. Things are looking okay in that department. But uh, now they've got to lower the landing gear, and it turns out that works by hydraulics, and that uh, this, this... RAT system, the pinwheel thingy that's out there, is not generating enough hydraulic pressure to lower the landing gear. But they have an emergency method, a switch that pulls the pins out of the landing gear doors. (laughs) So the co-pilot Kintle flips the switch and he and Pearson listen as the left and right landing gears noisily drop and lock. What about the nose gear? Well, there was another warning light then came on in the cockpit. The nose gear had not locked into place, and there was going to be no time to fix it. Next domino. Landing gear's down. Slows him down a bit, but um, the captain realizes he's still coming in too hot. So he wrestles the plane into a side slip. Turns it a bit to the side to sort of present more. Well, explain that. That's exactly what you were, where you were going, Doug. You turn the plane to the side. You push the nose over to one side. The tail will swing the other, produces uh, more drag along the slipstream. Uh, very common and easy maneuver uh, to do in smaller airplanes with straight wings. It gets a little trickier when you do it in a swept wing aircraft, uh, such as most modern jets. Well, Captain Pearson apparently uh, turned the plane into the side slip. Uh, in doing so, the left wing was dropping a bit low. Witnesses later said that he held this position until the wingtip was about 40 feet off the ground while traveling at 200 miles an hour. Whatever it takes in that situation. (laughs) 
All right, next domino. Could anything else go wrong? Well, in fact, yes, something else could go wrong. Gimli Air Force Base had two parallel runways, 32 left and 32 right, one of which was still used by private aircraft. Now, the captain didn't know which one, but he had to pick one, so he guessed 32 left. That's what he was going to commit to and held the plane in the tilted position until the last second, then leveled it off and prepared to land. He's got no power, no instruments, hardly any brakes. The plane's coming in too fast. The controls are stiff. The nose gear is not locked into position. And some of the tires on the landing gear coming in fast were certain to burst. But that wasn't all of his problems. He looked down the far end of the runway before touching down and noticed race cars. Apparently, the Winnipeg Sports Car Club was having a tailgate party, having held a race earlier that day out at the airbase. So, Captain Pearson looks down and observes campers, tents, coolers, barbecues, all at the end of the runway, having a cookout. Now, of course, the, the, the crew and, and the passengers were the only ones, of course, to have a surprise on this day. People out at the cookout looked up and observed a silent and very much out of place 767 <laughs> headed their way. <laughs> they Barreling that, in on them. They note that many who did see it coming, and at that point tilting with its left wing nearly scraping the ground, were too stunned to move. But it didn't really matter anyway. There was no time to clear the runway. Captain Pearson was going to have to land the plane in a much shorter distance than he'd been planning. So, the plane comes in, the tires hit the runway, two tires on the right landing gear burst, as they anticipated that it might. And um, so the captain's literally standing on the brake pedals, throwing his own weight into slowing the plane down. And uh, the nose gear, of course, touches down and gives way because it's unlocked. The fuselage of the jumbo jet then starts scraping the ground. And I did not know this, but jumbo jets are engineered to be tough enough to land on their belly if necessary. And that's exactly what was happening with, you know, a cloud of sparks and smoke coming off the plane. Uh, They note that you normally steer an airplane with the nose wheel, which was now out of commission. So the captain was trying to steer the aircraft by shifting his weight from one brake pedal to the other and trying to veer it left and right down the runway to further scrape off speed. In fact, he noticed a metal guardrail off the one side and headed for it, noting that it made a heck of a racket as it sheared one guardrail post after another, but it slowed the plane down even further. The 767, it says, finally came to a halt about halfway down the runway, 500 feet away from the auto club. Now, from start to finish, from the first uh, the first emergency light going on till the, 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 the semi-crash landing was only 29 minutes. They note the time was 8.30, 38, and this is a summer night. And uh, it, if it had been scheduled just an hour later, they say it would have been too dark to land. He would have uh, had difficulties even maintaining the plane upright without uh, proper instrumentation at night. Captain Pearson, well, he was demoted to first officer for six months. First officer Kintel was suspended with pay for two weeks. And the three members of the ground crew were suspended without pay for 10 days. So the pilots had a better union. Apparently. They did note that the investigation questioned the wisdom of introducing a metric aircraft into an Imperial Air Fleet. But uh, the report ultimately exonerated Pearson and Kintel, but also credited them with saving the passengers against some very long odds. Well, that they had done. Unfortunately, it was them that had thrown the dice for those odds in the first place. (laughs) Well, okay. In conclusion, they noted that Air Canada updated its procedures and improved its training. 
More importantly, it assigned the task of calculating the fuel load to one individual who is qualified to do it, even if the computers aren't working. They note the Gimli glider experience has not been repeated, at least not on Air Canada. Actually, Doug, this was uh, this whole incident inspired a made-for-TV movie back in 1995. It was with uh, William Devane, who played uh, Captain Bob Pearson, and it was called uh, "Falling from the Sky," Flight 174. I believe they changed the numbers of the flight. Mm-hmm. I uh, recently looked it up online and I looked at one of the initial early reviews of this movie, and it's a made-for-TV movie, so it's it's not going to be. Uh, good quality stuff, but the reviewer wrote that it was such a poorly made movie because they had so many impossible <laughs> things happening to this one poor flight right. that it could not have happened. Odds. And then the reviewer was later forced to recant when he found out it was in fact a true story. Couple of postscripts. They resurfaced the aircraft. It's been back uh, back in the air, and they said you might want to ask your flight attendant if you're flying on Air Canada if you're actually riding the Gimli glider. And, and the last item was that, that after this emergency landing, they dispatched several mechanics to Gimli to repair the jet. But on the way over, their van ran out of gas. <laughs> well, I trust we did not run out of gas for our audience because I think that is one heck of a story. Indeed it is. And, and I'm glad you were here as my co-pilot. We sometimes see items in the news that are so incredible that some may dispute that they happened at all. Numerous websites exist to try and weed the amazing from the urban legend. Snopes.com, for example. In our final segment today, we take a look at what supposedly happened in August 2006 to a Boeing 727 flying freight in Canada. This aircraft reportedly hit a very bad weather cell. Photos posted on the internet show such extensive damage that some dispute that an airplane could have kept flying under the circumstances. Sacramento commercial pilot Vladimir Zarevika was part of the flight crew on the aircraft in question. He joins us to talk about what really happened. Vlado Zarevika, welcome to Insight. Thanks, Doug. Some people looked at photos posted on the web of your aircraft, and and by the way, they're apparently still up at storm2k.org, and they said, this has got to be some sort of internet hoax. How do you respond to that? Uh, the first time that I saw something, which was just a few days later when the photos got uh, put on there, the individual who had written up their little remark on, on that was completely and utterly wrong about every detail of what they had put on there. I responded to, to that one. And then subsequently after that, I realized that uh, I'm, this is a futile effort on my part. In fact, the only thing that he got right on it was the fact that it was a Boeing 727 and that it was over Canada. Every other detail was wrong. So let's clear this up. You were there. What really happened? It was a routine flight. Uh, We had been taking off from uh, uh, the city in Canada there on a regular flight that we had been doing the past week, week and a half. And on this particular time, uh, the weather in August in uh, over the Canadian plains uh, was a bit rough. After a few minutes of flight and uh, up to approaching about 30,000 feet as we were still climbing, we got hit by the mother of all hailstorms <laughs> that came out of nowhere. I think in California, we're used to having no weather, unless maybe perhaps in the Sierra foothills. So people sort of forget that in other parts of the country, uh, you know, nasty storms are quite normal in the summer. Yes, uh, yes, they are. And what was particularly strange about uh, this hailstorm was that we had no warning of it. 
We had been following another cargo aircraft that had taken off three minutes ahead of us from the Canadian airport. They had taken off. We were cleared into position and hold. As soon as they took off and started their turn, we were cleared for takeoff. The tower asked that aircraft what direction that they would like to fly because of the uh, thunderstorms that were in the area. Mm -hmm. And then uh, subsequently, three minutes later, they asked us and I, as the co-pilot, and that particular leg was working the radio, and I said the same exact direction. So you're just following them? We were three to five minutes, which translated once we got up into our speeds, could be anywhere from two to three, four miles behind them. Okay. And they were going to the same city. They like Every afternoon, they, they went to the same city. We went to the same city. Depends who gets there first is who can load up the airplane first and get out to the runway. The last radio call I made before the biggest part of the hailstorm hit was to air traffic control, and I asked them if they see anything on their radar system because I don't see anything on ours. I was working the radar, the captain was flying the airplane, and the control uh, uh, air traffic control center said, no, it looks like the worst of the stuff is behind us. And then it hit. We were already in turbulence. There was already a, a loud hailstorm. Then the hail hit hard. So you're probably used to getting the occasional buffeting by hail in a cargo aircraft. Uh, yeah, a little right. bit of hail, and then and then it kept getting louder. I'm guessing. At first, it was turbulence. We entered the clouds at about I would estimate about ten thousand feet. Okay. And when by the time we reached the thirty thousand feet, which was anywhere between eight to ten minutes later, it was slowly intensifying. The turbulence was intensifying, and the hail was intensifying. But a few seconds before the worst of it hit. It was so loud that the three of us who sit about two feet apart from each other in the cockpit could not communicate unless we leaned over and literally screamed in each other's ears. If any of your listeners have ever been in a small hailstorm in their car, well, multiply that noise by 157 feet of fuselage, <laughs> 100 feet plus of wingspan at 300 miles an hour. That's how loud it was. And, but that still wasn't the worst of it. At this point, some people probably have pulled this up on the website. I'm looking at the picture in front of me right now, and it does show the, um, I guess you'd call it the nose cone, the front of the 727. And it looks as though you could stand up and stick your arm into it, probably up to at least your elbow and probably to your shoulder before you hit uh, the interior of the, of the plane. The nose cone on the 727 houses the radar uh, unit, and, and the, on the picture, I'm not sure if you can actually see part of the radar dish. So most of that is hollow because it allows the radar dish to sweep back and forth. But the size of that hole, by the way, that was a freshly painted aircraft. If you look yeah. at the pictures of, of the paint being peeled off of it. That aircraft had been painted within the, the, the month or two before that hit. The size of the hole that had been beaten through the fiberglass portion uh -huh. of the nose cone uh -huh. was a good three, three and a half feet diameter. Mechanics climbed through it to, to, to take a look. And it appears as though someone took a ball-peen hammer and went around the rim and just left these like ball indentations along the, whole, the entire rim. There probably wasn't a square inch of the uh, engine nacelle, leading edge of the engine nacelle, on the number one and the number three engines, the pod engines on the side, uh, that weren't uh, beat up. Likewise, uh, that happened on the leading edge of the wings, if you see on some of the other photos. Yeah, it looks like the the lights on the side, the, the cover on that is just completely smashed. And, and of course, and your windshield. Let's talk about your windshield. 
Yeah, that was that was the absolute uh, most frightening part. The point that the hailstorm hit the hardest, seconds before the windshield started cracking, I, who sit on the right side of the aircraft in the cockpit behind that window, was leaning forward towards my left working the weather radar. And the re- weather radar is similar to, to how you see on the evening news on the weather report. You've got the Doppler radar where it paints green for light showers, yellow for more intense showers, and red for thunderstorms. I was working the radar, bent over, dialing the knobs, uh, and it was only yellow and green. We were showing no red thunderstorm cells that should produce such hailstorms and such, and Remember, the air traffic controller had just told us that the worst of it was behind us, and we knew that this other aircraft, who hadn't made any diversions, was three to five minutes ahead of us. And they're not saying anything. They're not saying anything. And then it hit us. And it was already so loud at that point, because we were in some hail already. The engineer, Mikey, who sat behind me, a good friend of mine, started pounding me on the shoulder. I looked over my left shoulder, and he was pointing up towards my windshield. I looked up at the windshield as it was starting to crack. Oh, boy. At that point, time stopped for me. It's, it's one of those things where the way I remember, and I guess how the human brain works under extreme amounts of stress, I was in slow motion. Yeah. To me, it felt like for four years, I was sitting there watching each little crack on the windshield spread out. Well, I'm looking at the photo now, and, it, and this is the seat you were in, and it looks as though, it looks as though 85% of the windshield is just cracks. Correct. And as you were watching, those were like spreading before your very eyes? Yes, yes. Because wow. I was sitting there, and, and I'll, I'll confess, I sat there like a deer stunned in the headlights thing. Well, I guess you're expecting any moment, perhaps you're about to get hit by a 500-mile gust of wind? In, in my official report to the company on the incident, I, at that point I said, and I just sat there waiting to die. I was expecting a, a, a three-foot-wide by two-foot-tall dual pane of high-tempered glass that's about two and a half feet away from me to come smashing into my face, followed by tons of ice, all at about 300 miles an hour. Wow. So you're standing there, but you don't even know how long, I guess. Well, later I asked Mikey, the engineer, how long I sat there, stunned. And he said, as long as it took me to reach over, grab my oxygen masks put it on, and we're, we're trained to do that with one hand in less than five seconds. Then he said, I looked over at you, saw that you were still sitting there, slapped you in the back of the head, and screamed, put on your mask. Just like in the movies, uh, as you see the old war movies where the, uh, the fresh recruit is first time in combat and he freezes up, and when the sergeant comes along and starts screaming at him and hits him in the back of the head, he snaps into action. At that point, after I donned the oxygen mask, reprogrammed the GPS for the captain, he started the turn. I got on the radio and for the first time in my entire, at that point, 16-year career, made a mayday call. Later, when we were on the ground safely, the, the captain asked me if I knew that there was a difference between a mayday call and an emergency call. Many times you declare an emergency uh, uh, on the radio. Mayday me- pretty much means the airplane's going down. Oh, I looked at the captain, and this was right after we had landed, and I sat there, and I go, yeah, I know. Then he looked back at me, looked at the damage, and he goes, you might not have been wrong. From <laughs> at, at that point, we, we turned around. The okay. captain turned to the left, away from where the most of the damage was coming from, where okay. the hail was coming from. 
turn, made a descending turn to the left. I had made the, the mayday call and we were cleared to go directly back to the, uh, uh, to the airport. I had reprogrammed the GPS. We were, were in such shaking, uh, turbulence that it was difficult to, to read the gauges. So we were not quite sure when to stop the turn. And I had tried to communicate once we thought where we were going and mm-hmm. the, and all of the gauges settled down, or at least our eyeballs settled down from all of the shaking. Uh, I tried to communicate with uh, air traffic control again that we were heading back and I couldn't raise them. I couldn't reach them. And at that point I was afraid because, because I thought, great, now we've lost radio communication because the antenna is in some farmer's field in Saskatchewan somewhere. Oh. As it turns out, because of the storm, we just weren't able to con- to, to reach uh, the air traffic control center on the ground. But a Canadian airline, WestJet, did hear us and was able to relay our information of what we wanted. And then probably about three to five minutes later, we were uh, in direct radio contact again. And hearing that WestJet's voice was, was uh, boy, it was a big sigh of relief. At least we had some communication with the ground. So, so you're, in a, you're in a lightning storm. What about the lightning? Well, it's kind of funny what you notice and what you remember, because as this started going, I vaguely remember there being flashes. Now, remember, we're, we were in the clouds at this time, so it was as somebody painted the windshield gray. And there were flashes of light, and it was understandable if we're approaching thunderstorms, there should be some, but it's kind of difficult to tell distances uh, it wasn't it wasn't dark yet. It was kind of starting to approach dusk. But you can't tell if you're in a cloud. You can't tell if a lightning flash is right next to you or if it's 50 or 60 miles away. Coupled with the fact that the radar on the airplane was not showing any thunderstorms in our area. When we descended through about 10,000 feet, heading back towards Calgary, the only damage we could see within the aircraft was my windshield that was shattered. Fortunately, only the outer pane was shattered because Boeing built such a rock-solid aircraft that they have double windshield. All right, let's hear it for Boeing. Um, let's hear it for Boeing. Yeah, I am, I'm the biggest Boeing fan on the planet. <laughs> okay. And the only other damage that we could tell in front of the captain's windshield, about uh, two feet out away from his windshield, there was a piece of weather stripping that was coming loose. And then we knew that this is where the... Uh, aircraft's fuselage is uh, uh, is attached to the uh, radar dome, to the nose cone of the aircraft. So we thought that might have been loose. All of the checklists that we did and all of the uh, diagnosis, if, if you will, that we did told us that the radar dome, that the nose cone of the aircraft was still on intact because we do have procedures how to land the aircraft if we suspect that that's up. We went with the assumption that it was still there. We landed the aircraft. It was still daylight at this time. Taxied back to uh to our cargo ramp and we weren't able to contact the ground handlers there but they knew that we had turned around and come back because their company had seen it on on uh, their radar screen they figured something was wrong probably yeah and they was actually kind of funny because they were upset because they were already on their way home and had to get called back to work because here comes the the cargo aircraft what's wrong with these knuckleheads yeah did they forget something what is it (laughs) were they too afraid to go flying in bad weather you Uh know the whole host of things you want to go home you don't want to get called back to work it was kind of funny because i was leaning forward looking at at him as much as I could from the front and they were marshalling waving the aircraft in and the look on the guy's face went from just anger to eyes wide open <laughs> mouth dropped in horror and we still didn't understand what this was it's like so your first your first 
gauging of what the plane looks like is coming from his astonished expression. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we stop to park the airplane. They pull up the ladder. We run on down, and then it hits us because then all of the damage that you've seen on, on the uh, aircraft, the nose cone being a good three feet of it missing, uh, the leading edge of every wing of the nacelles around uh, the engines just being looked like somebody took a hammer and, and beat them uh, yeah, these are big dents. I mean, these are bigger than your thumb. These are big. Yes. Yeah. Yes. At that point, we finally realized how much damage there truly was. Uh, a few days later, when the mechanics started really going over the aircraft, they found 13 at last count. They found 13 holes in the aircraft with scorch marks around them. They were lightning entry exit points. Now, at some point, the lighting must have forked because there's an odd number of holes of it going in and out. So we could have been hit with 12. We could have been hit with six. We don't know, but we got hit by lightning. The biggest lightning hole was about two of the, uh, the mechanic's hands put together, that big or wide. And the Chunk small, missing. Yes, underneath okay. the wing. And the smallest was a pinky-sized hole. And this is a testament to the most amazing aircraft ever built <laughs> by Boeing, the fact that it's an electrical airplane. Everything on that aircraft is pretty much run by electrics, if you will. Generators uh, powering different systems. They stayed intact. We never lost any type of electrical function on any of our instruments, or any of our gauges, or any of our flight controls. And we must have hit, got hit by lightning at least several times through that. Wow. And we were so busy, we did not even notice it. Wow. I also want to give uh, uh, kudos to Pratt & Whitney, who built the yeah. engines how that your... stayed running with thousands of pounds of ice going through them. And, and, and how did that happen? How did those, those fan Pratt blades... Because Pratt & Whitney makes a damn good engine. That's how. We don't know how big the hail was either. I mean, We don't. Is we there don't. any way they can guesstimate later? I, I don't know. Okay. I, I have no idea. One, one of the websites, the guy said there was baseball-sized hail. I was a bit too uh, uh, scared out of my mind to notice which sports equipment the hail <laughs> resembled. Well, nevertheless, how does it go through a fan blade and not just rip it up? I, I'm just, I'm amazed by this. It, it, it got chewed up a little bit. We had the engine heat on before we had even entered the clouds. That, that heats the nacelles of the engine. So if any ice builds up, it melts and, and it doesn't clog up the engines. The mechanics did tell us that the, the, the forward fan blades were sharpened to a razor sharp edge. Wow. And it must have been that they chewed through that ice and, and vaporized it or liquefied it, and then it just went through the rest of the engine and the, uh, the mechanics that maintain our engines and Pratt and & Whitney who built them and Boeing who decided wow. to put those engines on the airplane, they worked. They did not even hiccup the whole entire time. We, we run through uh, rainstorms all the time. It's, it's more uh, uh, so water can... can the engines can handle water fairly easily. It's just ice that's uh, a little bit uh, harder than water, as you can ask the <laughs> folks on the Titanic. <laughs> All right, well, Vlado, final comments? Well, the final comment is to put the final rumor to rest that was on the internet that the uh, engineer, Mikey, and I, myself, the first officer, did not quit after uh, we got back on the ground. And the fact that the airplane was not scuttled uh, was not disassembled. In fact, I was in that same exact airplane less than 30 days later flying a revenue flight, hauling cargo, and earning money for it. Presumably with new fan blades in the Pratt & Whitney. It was with new fan <laughs> blades. People asked me if I was afraid to fly in that particular airplane ever again. My response was, hell no. That's my favorite airplane <laughs> on the planet. 
that's the one that brought me back, and it's still in use today. Well, it's a hell of a story, and it's all true. And I want to thank you for telling it to us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, Vlad will come again. We'll do some more aviation stuff in the not-too-distant future. Great. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar. All right, that was First Officer Vladimir Zaravika, Radio Parallax's own aviation correspondent. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned for our third segment.